Please stand for the reading of God's word. From John 18, 28 through 19, 16. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's quarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will, not, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, 
Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Um, welcome to Soma Church. My name is Ryan Sari. My family and I are members here. Um, if you're wondering what I'm doing up here, it's a good question to ask. Fair question. Um, basically, I told Kent about an idea that I had for a sermon once, and you know at this church, if you tell leadership about an idea that you have, you better be ready to back it up. Um, and so here I am today. Um, anyways, this passage is a little bit out of order from where we've been in the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been teaching since back in January about, um, from the Gospel of John. Last week we were in John 14. Pastor Dante taught about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, and the Spirit empowering his disciples. Um, this idea for the sermon today started a while back. I read a book a couple years ago about this encounter between Jesus and Pilate called Deciphering a Memory by Aldo Shivani. And this is not a book that you would find at Lifeway Christian stores, if those still exist, or in the Christian section at Indy Reads Books, if that still exists too. But um, it's a very academic, you know, historic point of view on this encounter between Pilate and Jesus. Part of what drew me to read the book is the title, Deciphering a Memory. Um, because of that, I've, I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about memory, about how the memories of John and the other gospel writers contribute so much to the stories, the characters that we read throughout the New Testament and throughout the gospels. You know, memory is a really fascinating thing, I think. Some of you cannot remember the songs that we just sang this morning. You cannot remember whether you showered or not this morning. <laughs> Some of you might remember every word that we sang, every title to the song, even the liturgy that we read. But if you consume as much true crime media as my wife and I do, you know that memory is a really flawed thing. It's not something you can trust that much. But so much of our day-to-day -day lives actually revolve around this ability to recall information. One of the few things that you'll actually ever hear me brag about is having a good memory. Um, I think most people think they have a good one, but, you know, ask any of my close family or friends and they'll, they'll tell you that I do. I had a friend actually tell me once that my memory was frustrating because he didn't like how much I could recall things about him, stories he told me, facts he told. Um, my middle brother had this experience recently, too, when I gave the best man speech at his wedding, and I'm able to recall every stupid thing he's done or said over the last 30 years. Um, so it's a blessing and it's a curse, because people don't always like that I have a good memory, but it can cause uh, divisions too, right? Who remembers this right? Who remembers this wrong? The classic um, who remembers this correctly battle in my family goes something like this. Um, we grew up with a small creek behind our house, and we'd have this little boat that was tied to a tree that we could put in the creek and go fishing. Um, but oftentimes, my friends and I would just toss the boat in the creek, leave it tied to a tree, and play pirates or something like this in the boat. One of these times, I'm in the boat with my friend Brett, 
and I hear my youngest brother screaming, um, and I look up, and he's on his bike. He's like six years old, probably, and he's coming down the hill from our driveway towards the creek, and he's apparently forgotten what brakes are, and screaming all the way until he splashes down into the creek, like 10 feet away from where I'm at in this boat. So heroically, I hop out of the boat, into the creek, rescue him, pull him to shore, never mind the fact that it comes up to about here. Um, still felt very heroic at the time. Um, and, you know, celebrate that I've rescued my youngest brother. Well, for almost 15 years, my brother insisted that it wasn't me that jumped into the creek. It was my friend Brett was the one who rescued him. You can imagine how this, you know, hurt my feelings and caused a lot of tension between the two of us over the years. Um, it didn't matter how many times I told him he was wrong. It didn't matter if my parents told him he was wrong. But thankfully, he, uh, you know, at my wedding, he gave a best man speech and publicly accepted that I was actually his creek rescuer. Uh, <laughs> memory, I think, is just, again, it's this funny thing where it can cause these silly arguments, but it also can cause some pretty serious division. And one of these reasons I've been reflecting on memories with this story about Jesus and Pilate, you know, one of the objections that I hear and you've probably heard about the Christian faith often is so much of it is just based on someone's memory, right? Their ability to recall things about these stories of Jesus. Some might even say it's all just made up, but a more academic objection would go something like this. Why should I trust the Bible to be true? Why should I live my life based upon how a few people in history remember things about Jesus? Why does the memory of Peter, James, Paul, why does it have such an impact on the world today or even on my own personal life? You know, this encounter with Pilate that we read is found in all four of the gospel accounts. And it does something, I think, perhaps more definitively than, than any other passage in these four gospels does. You know, by intersecting the life of Pilate with Jesus, John and the other writers, they put Jesus squarely into this moment in time in history where any future scholar, theologian, skeptic, whoever, can go and look and see, are these things that they wrote about this historical guy, are they true? Can we, trust, can we test the accuracy, the veracity of, of what they've said about Pilate? You know, the reason for this is that the Gospels all give really specific details about Pilate, who's this high-standing Roman official. If he were a real figure of history, then there'd be proof that he existed, that the things scriptures say about who he is and what he does here could be proven. You know, easy things like, was he a real person? Would he have been alive during this time? Can we see him using the kind of power that we see him using here? We're not just relying on the memory of a couple of people in that case. We're relying on a wealth of sources to dig into the truthfulness of this story in the life of Jesus. You know, not only in our time, 2,000 years later can we do this, but think about when John's gospel first started circulating a long time ago. It, to make a claim that Jesus had this really significant interaction with a top government leader, that it happened with public knowledge, and to be making that up uh, would be crazy. They'd be taking this crazy chance by associating Jesus with this really famous person at the time. It's kind of like the time that I tried to Photoshop Peyton Manning into a photo with myself at a friend's wedding and told people that we met and hung out, um, it'd be pretty easy to shoot down. 
you can tell my skills there on Photoshop from 10 years ago. The unicorn ice sculpture is a whole other story that um, we can get into another time. But this morning, I, I just want to drive home that, that Jesus is a lot more than just a memory or a fable. He's a lot more than just a nice thought or a good story, that history is on his side. If the things from this story in John and elsewhere in John's gospel are true and historical, then Jesus is the most disruptive character in all of history. And if this encounter between Jesus and Pilate really did happen, then a historical Jesus disrupts some of the biggest forces in the world. And we're going to look at three things specifically from this story that we find Jesus disrupting. The first is, or the, these three things are his polit our politics, our piety, and our passivity. So we'll jump right into how does Jesus disrupt our politics. Give me a few minutes here to set the scene. So in verse 28 and 29 that we read from chapter 18 this morning, it says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? So really natural questions we ask now is, who is Pilate, and why would they bring Jesus to him? Pilate is, at the time, the prefect of Judea. Sometimes the word governor is used here. We understand that word a little bit more today. But for, from a formal point of view, um, only the emperor of Rome has a higher standing than Pilate in his own province. He is, in essence, our heir colchum, which isn't that exciting, but that's the truth. Um, Roman Judea, you know, was a pretty small region by Roman standards. We have a map here. Um, it's about 160 kilometers north to south, 70 kilometers east to west. It's just that a little red sliver um, in a yellow ocean of Rome there, about the size of Connecticut today. Historical records tell us that of the 12 governors that ruled this region at different times, Pilate was the fifth. He came around the year 26. Um, according to the historian Josephus, he was around 40 years old when he took this post. Well, a lot of this information that I just shared about Pilate and Judea has just received very little scrutiny over time because of the wealth of sources that we have. There was an even probably more interesting discovery made in 1961 of what's called the Pilate Stone, uh, which we also see on the screen here. This carved limestone was discovered at an archaeological site in Caesarea. And it reads something like, to the divine Tiberium from Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, he has dedicated this. So basically a building dedication stone that has Pilate's name on it. And as stated in history, in Gospels at other times, Tiberius was the Roman emperor, so the only person higher than Pilate at the time. Now this is literally concrete evidence of Pilate's existence, of his standing, of his power at the time that scripture places him. This is actually on display at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem today. So, Pilate was real. The claims that scripture make about him at least could be true. So that's a little bit about just historically Pilate. So what was the job of prefect or governor? Well, it usually concerned civil and criminal jurisdiction, fiscal affairs, collecting taxes for Rome, public order, and military defense of the province. A third century writer put it this way, it's appropriate for a good governor 
who takes his duty seriously to see that the province under his control is kept quiet and peaceful. He'll secure this without difficulty if he takes conscientious measures to make sure that the province is free from malefactors and that he hunts them out. He must therefore track down everywhere temple robbers, bandits, falsifiers, and thieves, and punish each according to their crime. So we start to see here an answer to one of these questions. Why did they bring Jesus to Pilate? You know, on top of uh, Pilate's duty to keep the order, in verse 31, the Jewish leaders told Pilate, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Now, I think they could be doing one of two things or both here. One is they literally believe that they can't come in close contact with a dead body as, as Passover approaches. Or second, what I think is more likely is that they're stroking Pilate's ego. <laughs> they're saying, this is your authority. This is not our thing. You're the guy here. You've got the power. We don't have this kind of power. So whether or not they are actually able to put Jesus to death, they do believe that they can talk Pilate into doing that for them. That the province is not being kept quiet and peaceful like it's supposed to be. That Jesus is a threat to Roman imperialism and the order brought to Judea that Pilate's supposed to keep. So coming back to the question that I posed, how does Jesus disrupt or challenge our politics? As we move forward in this story, the first question that John records being asked of Jesus by Pilate is this, are you the king of the Jews? You know, other times Jesus is asked by the Jewish leaders, like in Mark 14, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? That question is a lot more theological. The Jewish leaders are asking, um, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been promised? Are you the one we should put our trust into? And Jesus gives them a really clear answer in that instance and says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He tells them, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I am the divine Son of God. Pilate's question is actually different. He says, are you the king of the Jews? This is much more of a political curiosity. He doesn't care whether or not Jesus thinks he's the Messiah. He wants to know if he thinks he's king of the Jews. He wants to know if Jesus is going to set up some sort of rival government to his. You know, the way that Jesus answers Pilate is also very different than how he answers the Jewish leaders. He says, is that your own idea or did you get it from others? You know, I think I'm pretty good at dodging direct questions like when my kids ask me for a snack. Um, when did you last have a snack? What did your mom say? Why do you think you deserve a snack right now? <laughs> but Jesus is even better than me at this. Um, he's pretty good throughout the New Testament at turning a question on its head, but this one I feel like takes it to a new level. He, it's neither a denial or an affirmation, or maybe a better or more interesting way to say it is, it's both a denial and an affirmation of this question. I think in um, Guest Preaching 101, there's a chapter on not talking about politics, but here we are and here I go. Um, <laughs> When Pilate asked this, I think Jesus could have answered a few different ways. He could have said, no, 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 I'm not a political leader. I'm just a spiritual guy. Um, I'm just here to inspire people. It's not going to affect how they live or vote or change their lives. All my followers are really going to do is just pray. On the flip side, he could have said, yeah, of course I'm a political leader, and I'm the king of the Jews. I'm here to overthrow your government and establish my theocracy. While you might have a, pro a preference 
that Jesus had said one or the other here, I think the answer that he gives is both a yes and a no, that it's intentionally ambiguous. And it's important for us, I think, as believers, as followers of Jesus, to stay on that fence of yes and no. You know, it's a yes because following Jesus does lead us to live and act in ways that disrupt the political power and authority systems that we face in our lives, just as it has throughout history. It's a no because Jesus has not come to start a revolution that happens through power acquisition or coercion. And he says it really clearly in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, and if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. If that verse doesn't rock you, then I would read it again and love to do a sermon on that. Wait, I shouldn't say that, actually. <laughs> Scratch, scratch that from the record. <laughs> you know, I admit that um, I wish there was a more specific formula in Scripture for how we engage politics as Christ followers. As Dante shared about mayors, I wish there was a formula for who I should want to be elected. But I don't think there is. And, and like, like a lot of you probably, I, you know, I'm disappointed, I'm sad, I'm hurt about the state of politics around the world today. But... All I know is following Jesus leads us to be engaged. It leads us to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. At the same time, it does not come like most kingdoms do. The answer for how we engage lies in this yes and this no, this intentional ambiguity that Jesus gives to us here. You know, whatever our disposition, more than likely, Jesus disrupts what we think should be true when it comes to politics, to ethics, to social order. So, Jesus disrupts our politics, and he also disrupts our piety. Now, I'll admit that uh, using the word religion here would probably be better than using the word piety, but as a marketing professional, I can't resist having all my words start with the letter P and uh, utilizing alliteration. So, Jesus challenges our piety, or religion, whatever you want to remember. Um, you know, the next character that we're introduced to in this story is Barabbas in verse 40. Um, Pilate's interrogation of Jesus, we think, is over in chapter 18, and he faces a crowd gathered outside of his residence. So according to verse 39, it's custom during Passover for Pilate or the prefect to release a prisoner to the people. Now, we don't know as much about Barabbas as we do about Pilate, but John and the other writers, they do treat him as a historical character. You know, this release of Barabbas is recorded in all four gospel accounts, just like Pilate is. So, again, a natural question to ask here, why did Pilate choose Barabbas in this story? Well, for starters, we know Barabbas isn't the only person in prison. You know, two other people, two other robbers, end up getting crucified next to Jesus. Um, also, it's believed that in most cases, the prefect would just choose this person. They wouldn't put it up to vote to the crowd. On top of that, in Mark and Luke's gospel, Barabbas is described as a murderer. In Matthew, he's called a notorious prisoner. He's believed to be a member of the insurrection in the anti-Roman resistance, an insurgent, a bitter enemy of re religious leadership groups. You know, people like Barabbas accuse the religious leaders of getting too close, too comfy, with the friendly, and too friendly with the Romans. So why did Pilate choose Barabbas and not just any prisoner? I think... Pilate chose Barabbas. He believed he'd pick the right person to set against Jesus to actually free Jesus. 
that the religious leaders would never spare someone like Barabbas, who opposed them so vocally and so violently. But we know that's not what happens in the story. According to Mark's gospel, the religious leaders stir up the crowd against Jesus, so much so that when Pilate asks, what do you want me to do with him? They say, crucify him, kill him. It's kind of hard to fathom, but in essence, what the religious leaders are saying is this, that Jesus is more of a threat to us than a known murderer, insurgent, and robber is. Jesus is more of a threat than someone who openly hates us and has tried killing us. And I think that they're right. <laughs> Jesus is more of a threat to religion and religious power. You know, up until this point, um, for the past three years or so, Jesus has been openly, publicly challenging the religious leaders left and right. Um, one of my favorite encounters happens in Mark chapter 7. The Pharisees ask Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is the kind of thing Jesus has been saying for a while now, and they're not real happy about it. See, he has, Jesus has freed his followers in the world, for that matter, from the bondage of religion. He's the new head of the church. He doesn't lead with guilt, with condemnation, with fear, with rules. He leads from a place of servanthood and of sacrifice. And the question is, has Jesus disrupted your religion today, or do we still trust in our own actions and good morals to get us favor with God. You know, I have to admit that I lived all of my 20s and a good bit of my 30s um, believing that I didn't have any problem with religion, um, that that was left to people that are in high church, denominational type of settings. They're the ones that struggle with religion. It's not me. Some of you are doing math on how old I am right now, but stick with me. Um, through some hard realizations in, in counseling, I think God revealed to me that religion did, in fact, dwell in my heart where grace and peace should be. You know, I think as a Christian, you're probably fine admitting that our salvation, you know, has nothing to do with us, um, everything to do with God, but we probably struggle not to think that the good stuff I do should earn me some points with God, right? Let me uh, give you a couple things to think about, though. When you hear or read, for example, 1 Peter 5, 7, that says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Where does your mind immediately go? Does it go to, I need to cast my cares on him more and start to make a to-do list of the things that you need to add to your disciplines and your ways that you're going to get right with God? Or do you more reflect on the fact that God the Father cares for you? Does that create peace and joy? in your heart? Does it move you to want to cast your cares on him, to deepen your relationship with him? I think if your impulse is the former to start your to-do list, you know, that much more closely resembles religion. Putting your trust into something man-made, putting the emphasis on yourself and what you've got to do, and even how well or how often you do it, maybe. Let me give you one other gut check. <laughs> Have these kind of thoughts entered your heart or mind? I could never go to a megachurch. Is God really in that? 
we had to work hard for our building, but other guys just get it handed to them. <laughs> we really get it when it comes to what God cares about, but other churches, not so much. You know, these are all thoughts that are born out of this idea that, that our way is the best way, or even worse, maybe the only way, and that's pretty much religion. It's putting in the trust in ourselves, in our own ideas, our ways of doing things, and Jesus challenges all of that. We've got to let go of the idea that we've got the market cornered on modern, Christi modern Christianity or relevance or following Jesus or whatever we call it these days. You know, God is using the megachurch in South Korea. He's using the house church in China. He's using old buildings and new ones. And he's using whatever this thing is here where all the men wear t-shirt Henleys apparently in Indianapolis. Sorry to call you out if you're wearing one today, but I am too. Um, you know, Jesus challenges our piety, our religious ways of thinking and living that get in the way of us letting go and letting Jesus be Lord. So Jesus disrupts our politics and our piety, and lastly, our passivity. This section of John's gospel, I think, ends quite sadly. Uh, wanting to rid himself of this problem on his hands, Pilate ultimately gives in to what the crowd wants, um, more or less washes his hands of this. He orders Jesus to be beaten and tortured, and then he orders him to be delivered, to be crucified. One of the things that John's account, none of the gospel accounts give me much detail about that I wish I knew more is like, what did Pilate actually think about Jesus? Did he think he was interesting? Did he think he was nuts? Did he think he was cool or anything? I have no idea. The only, we do know that from John's account that he thought Jesus was innocent, that he found no reason to put him to death, but what did he actually think about his movement? Did he think he was special? As I mentioned earlier, a lot of my uh, just ideation and preparation around this sermon came from this book called Deciphering, Deciphering a Memory, specifically about this encounter between Jesus and Pilate. Uh, in the book, the author attempts to describe what Pilate's belief system mostly would have been like at the time, and he says this, Pilate was a Roman citizen of the first century, a man of the imperial establishment, educated enough to reflect upon truth, curious enough to allow himself to be amazed by Jesus, intelligent and clear-headed enough to occupy political posts, ones involving responsibility and discernment and the ability to make quick decisions. It's probable that he had no solid religious convictions, perhaps something resembling a hazy polytheist eclecticism, possibly tainted with skepticism. It was the climate of the times. This would not have stopped him from being superstitious and susceptible to the supernatural like many Romans. So let me condense that into bullet point, bullet point form for you. Pilate was most likely Educated, intelligent, career-oriented, no strong religious convictions, hazily polytheist, meaning generally spiritual, skeptical, superstitious, and we know passive about Jesus, but not necessarily anti-Jesus. Now, in contrast, let me attempt to describe the typical urban person in Indianapolis today. Educated, intelligent, career-oriented, no strong religious convictions, still holds to some spirituality somehow, maybe it's meditation, self-belief, skeptical of religion, superstitious, you know, good things happen to good people, while also not entirely anti-Jesus. So, 
first, let me say, if you're here today, if you're not a Christian, or you're just checking out this church thing, you're not sure where you're at, please don't hear me say that this is a list of negative things <laughs> by any means. It doesn't make you a bad person either. What I want to make clear, though, is just these striking similarities between how Pilate would have viewed Jesus 2,000 years ago and how most people in our culture today, in our context, view Jesus today. From a really intelligent, perhaps curious, but mostly skeptical point of view, you know, not a whole lot has changed. And if this describes you in any way today, even if you're a Christian who's just struggling with some doubts about Jesus, my challenge for you is this. Even if you have this Pilate mindset, you know, don't make the mistake that Pilate made. Don't be dismissive of Jesus. Don't pass the buck on him. Don't be passive. Don't give in to what the crowd is saying. Pursue the truth about who Jesus was and is. You know, maybe you'll go down the path of investigating Jesus for yourself, decide that he wasn't who he said he was. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but please do yourself the favor of at least being skeptical of your own skepticism. And don't dismiss Jesus because of your history, because of your doubts or your faith in your own intellect. You know, some people have called the dominant religion of our time apathyism. Um, it's probably one of those marketing words that I'm drawn to, but, you know, combining apathy and theism into a belief system. It's not that people are hostile generally, right? They just don't care. <laughs> they can't be bothered. They'd rather have brunch than attend a sermon or watch Wimbledon on Sunday morning. I don't have a method or a resource or a solution to reverse, you know, decades of cultural movement towards this way of thinking, but for us here today who are in Christ, do we choose passivity? Do we choose to live believing that Jesus was real and is worthy of disrupting everything that we try to hold on to? Uh, I'll close this morning with this. You know, if you've, if you've been around church for a while or even just attended a few Easter services over the years, maybe you've heard this thought experiment that if you were placed into this story, who would you most identify with? Would it be Pilate, who is ultimately, you know, intelligent guy, but kind of dismisses Jesus at face value? Would you be a Jewish religious leader who is more actively opposed to Jesus? Would you be someone in the crowd who just goes with the flow of what other people are saying? You know, I'll let you ponder that on your own, but I, one thing I want you to go home encouraged by is this. If you're in Christ today, if you've chosen to put your faith in Jesus to be your Lord, your Savior, your King, then we aren't really Pilate, we aren't really the crowd, we aren't the Jewish leaders, we're much more like Barabbas. And here's why. Barabbas was guilty. Each gospel account describes Barabbas in different ways, but each guilty is something. Murder, robbery, insurrection. Barabbas was on death row. If Pilate had his way, Barabbas would have been facing crucifixion and not Jesus. Barabbas got another chance. When Pilate sets him free, Barabbas has his previous record wiped out and can start over as a new man in the world. Just like Barabbas, we stand guilty before God. Paul writes in Romans 3 that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, we've each done things outside of God's plan. Hopefully not murder or robbery, but we've treated one another poorly. We've held grudges. We've condemned one another. In some ways, we're on death row, like Barabbas was as well. Again, from Romans 6, Paul says the wages of sin is death, saying that without intervention, we're apart from God. We're on our way to a life lived separated from him. 
And just like Barabbas, we've been given another chance at life because Jesus took our place. Sticking with the Romans again, Paul says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Our guilt is gone. We are off death row. Jesus went to the cross instead of us. Just like Barabbas, we have been set free when we didn't deserve it. Jesus has died so that we might live. Jesus, I believe, is a lot more than just a memory, a lot more than just a guy in history. He was real, and he's real today. As we take communion together in a minute, that's what we come together to remember and to celebrate this truth. Let me pray for us. God, we are just here in all of you today. We're here to be in your presence, God. We thank you that by your son, we have that opportunity to sit before you, to, to be with you, God, to celebrate things like communion with one another. Thank you, God, that Jesus has taken our place. We're no longer guilty. We're no longer waiting or sentencing or anything, Lord, that we're set free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.